Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm doing great because I am sitting in a room with you. I know. We have, this is for the first time in well over a year, we have recorded this in person. Yep, and he's still as young and handsome as ever, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Don't worry. And Frank's vision has gotten worse over uh, the lockdown because clearly that's not the case. Yeah, so so uh, just, just by way of explanation, we are here in my office at the University of Edinburgh, which I have visited a couple of times in the past 15 months, normally to get books. This is my first time coming here properly. The university has allowed a limited reopening uh, um, as Scotland eases out of lockdown. And you and I are both partially vaccinated, yes, and thus socially distant, sitting in this room. So, so we're well, sh- well, we're always loud, but we have to shout a little bit to well, both be recorded. Yes, we're in compliance with the new guidance from the government and the university and all kinds of things. But it's nice to see you, Dave. It is nice to see you. Yes, it's much better than on the screen, to be sure. Right. Uh, topic this week uh, is critical race theory, which more than uh, lawmakers, more than twenty states have taken steps to ban either in schools or in universities or in both. Uh, and so this has become the new sort of hot button topic, at least among certain right wing lawmakers. Uh, so we want to talk about what the hell critical race theory is, why they seem so angry about it, uh, and why it seems to be on the headlines. Uh, Pretty much every day for the past few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think we want to draw a distinction in our in our discussion, David, between critical race theories, a sort of set of ideas, and an approach uh, that uh, that we can talk about that emerged mm. in the nineteen seventies and eighties to explain uh, racism in the United States and what we now call structural racism, and critical race theory in kind of inverted commas yeah. and all caps that that has become a kind of talking point and flashpoint, the latest front in the culture war that we've kind of discussed over the past several months. I think this is more serious than Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss. Oh, I think so, But it's so, also yeah. of a piece with it. Uh, it, it but, but before we get to all that, I, mm. so I think there are two versions of this. We have to kind of talk about it as a, as a kind of actual intellectual movement, if you will. And we also need to talk about it as a kind of uh, shorthand that's emerged mm. in the cultural war in the past month or so. Well, it's, 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 yeah, no, it's been very clear, I think, listening to the lawmakers when they were talking about these talking about critical race theory, that they have no idea what it is. Yes, that, that's that, right. That, that's right. That they're passing laws about, you know, a topic about, they, they've heard it's bad, and therefore they are, you know, and there's, well, there's a story about how uh, this right-wing talking point has evolved over the past uh, year in particular. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's figure out what, what, yeah, what actual critical race that's theory That's right. Is. So, so it should be said, just one thing before we do that, that, uh, of course, we've just had the, the unfortunate anniversary of the death of George Floyd, mm. uh, of the killing of George, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, and the Floyd family was at the White House yesterday. Uh, and, and this is all of a piece. I, I think the kind of modern, if you are a contemporary debate over this, to a certain extent, goes back to last summer. Oh, to be sure, And yeah. the uh, demonstrations, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations around the world. It, it's all of a piece that helps explain... Um, why it's become such a hot-button issue now. But, David, can you briefly summarize what critical race theory actually is, or CRT, before we All right. talk about what some people believe it, it is. is? All right, so well, I'm going to try to be brief. I'm probably going to fail. Because I mean, if we understand what critical race theory is, you understand that it's, it's a legal theory that emerged in basically Harvard Law School in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and I think in order to understand critical race theory, we need to understand something about or different ways in which law has been thought about in the United States and taught in American law schools. 
So if we're going to go back, let's go ahead and go back 100 years. Okay. We're history podcast making Yeah, you know, I get it. I get it. I, no, I'm pleased. In, in, I, David, I want to thank you for taking this one no, on no, because no. it's a very, well, it's not that complicated, but it is complicated. So, but, so. And, and if, if you are a, a law school professor listening to this and I get 90% of it wrong, like I'm not a law school, you know, I'm sort of law school professor adjacent in some ways. Um, so if we go back, you know, into the late 19th century or probably the 20th century, what was basically taught in law school was something called legal formalism, which taught that law was basically a set of abstract concepts that one needed to master, uh, and that law properly understood was divorced from sort of the real physical reality that we're in, right? So you understand the principles of contract law, you understand the principles of, of you know, property, and you take these various things, but they deal sort of, it's like law is philosophy, right? The law. The, the law, law. It, it exists <laughs> divorced from particular circumstances, and you need to understand the principles behind it, and you read, you know, classic legal texts with definitions and things, right? So, so that was sort of the model for a while. The response to that was something called legal realism, which emerged in the 1920s and 30s. And legal realism said, actually, in order to understand what law, we need to understand what the law looks like in practice, and we need to study it sort of like a natural science, right? So, so the law exists, and we need to examine sort of the laws that are made and what effects they have on things, but sort of law in the sort of scientific, pragmatic mode. That became dominant in the 20s and 30s. In the 70s, that gets challenged by something called critical legal studies. Uh, and critical legal studies uh, argued basically that, that you need to look at law in a very different kind of way and not this sort of detached sort of scientific way you need to understand that law is fundamentally about power and politics that the things that 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 lawyers do things that judges do things that that the police does is inherently political and uh, we need to understand law through that that lens that law has inherent social biases embedded within it that law you know, what laws say they're doing, what they're actually doing may not be the same thing, and we need to sort of analyze that critically. And the law sometimes is there to keep people in power with the power that they have, right? And so we need to understand how those sort of laws used to, to reinscribe levels of power, right? So property law is not there uh, to, is not there just to make sure everyone can keep their property. Property law is there to keep rich people so they can keep their property and keep poor people from getting poverty property, that kind of model, right? Um, and there's been a number of spin-offs of critical legal studies that emerged in the 1970s. You have like feminist legal theory emerges out of that. And critical race theory emerges out of that. It, it's a, a way of thinking about law. And it emerges mostly at Harvard Law School and then sort of spreads from there. Uh, and there's a couple of sort of key figures who are involved in this, Patricia Williams, Derek Bell, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, who I think was Derek Bell's student, uh, Richard Delgado, um, and, and they're using the, this framework from critical legal studies to understand how race is embedded within legal structures and looking at the ways in which laws, even laws that aren't, aren't on their face about race, tend to reinscribe racial hierarchies within the United States. So a good example of this would be the ways in which uh, housing law and housing policy leads to discriminatory practices against African Americans, right? Um, I mean, the, the sort of 
thinking about it, it's not sort of a theory in the ways in which I think lots of Republicans are talking about, think about it as a theory. It's kind of a sort of framework for thinking about law and practice. Um, you know, it's about structural racism. You know, it says like, look, the racism can exist as, as a systems of power that are not necessarily tied to individual actors. Oh, you're, you're, and, sorry, well, and, and sort of finally, you know, it, it sort of it has an activist agenda to it, right? The idea is these things exist, and therefore they can be changed, right? If 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 we understand how the law is used to reinscribe certain racial hierarchies, the law then can be used to to combat those inequalities. That's an excellent summary, David. Thank you, and and, and I'm glad you did that rather than me. So 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 thanks for that. I've got a an observation, and then I, I guess a couple of questions for you. Um, the observation would be, I, I think, in my reading on this, um, and again, like you, I must preface this by saying I'm, I'm, not a law, I'm not a lawyer, I did not go to law school, and I'm not a legal scholar, um, but the, it seems to me the focus is on trying to explain outcomes from a kind of systemic approach, and thus to try and change those outcomes. So is that, yeah. Do you consider that a fair? So, so that would be a, a brief summary uh, in response, but I have two two observations to make and uh, you can reply mm. or, or not or well, one is a question one's an observation it seems to me that this the movement that emerges in the uh, of critical legal studies in the 1970s and 80s is of a piece with what's going on with literature at the same time when you get a more critical turn and mm. postmodern turn in, in literary theory uh, and, and I don't know whether that's a coincidence or no, not. No, I think they're, they're all those are all tied together. And it's also tied together, I think, with the politics of the campuses, right? You know, people sure. at places like Harvard Law School, which in the 1970s were, were very white, at least in terms of the professoriate, you know, the, the handful of black students are saying, like, where are we in this curriculum? How do how does our experience, you know, inform the ways in which we're going to understand the law? Okay, so my question is, hmm. when does it jump well, I would say the species barrier, because that's a, something we're used to now that we're thinking about viruses. Mm. But when does it jump the disciplinary barrier? So this is, this is, this is something, this is, a, this is a way of thinking. It's not a single unified theory. Mm. You're right. We talk about critical race theory, but that, that's a singular theory doesn't really work for that. Mm. But, but, but that, that's that. CRT is what it's known as. When does it jump from law schools to history departments? Oh, well... I... Or does it? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there, there, there are sort of similar trends happening in history departments at the same time. But I don't think they're, they're exactly the same. Right? I think that they're, they're, those are, there's a cross-pollination that happens, um, as it always does, because historians and, and legal scholars are, are you know, often dealing with similar kinds of questions. Um, you know, a lot of the scholarship on... on um, you know, I mentioned housing. A lot, of, a lot of that is informed by the legal scholarship. So, 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 you know, a lot of that is happening in the past twenty years. You know, I think so. It's really in the twenty-first century. You know, people like Derek Bell are, are fairly moderately widely read uh, among historians. At least historians are interested in these kinds of questions. Um, but you know, thinking about you know how does critical race theory how does it exist in practice in law schools? You know, right now. You know, I think something in the order of, of 20 law schools in the United States have courses that are about critical race theory in part or in whole, which considering there were law schools in the United States is only a small fraction. 
It tends to be kind of an elective course that, that one takes in their final year of law school, not something that is part of the core curriculum particularly. So, you know, as a, a body of scholarship, it's an important body of scholarship, but it's, it's not, um, you know, a massive part of legal education per se. Sure, but not all law schools are created equal in the sense, g- given their influence. Oh, to be sure. So, so if it's taught at Harvard, mm. then it's going to have an influence on the development of the judiciary in the United States. To be oh, sure, to, yeah, oh, no, without, without a doubt, if the people who go to Harvard choose to take that particular yes, course. Yes, right, right. So sure, it's, sure. So it's um, not a required, you know, it's not required a first year. Yeah, tort course. law is required, right. this is not. Right, okay, um, sorry. Uh, yes, so, so, so it, it is, you know, they, they've had a number of conferences and they've had you know, a few hundred journal articles. Uh, but it's 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 an approach and a very diverse approach. I mean, I think if you look within this as a, a school of, of thought, it's not as if all these people necessarily agree with each other all the time. Um, so so as a coherent body of thought, um, you know, we'll get we'll get to this in a minute. But you know, people are banning the teaching of it in like elementary school. Well, it's barely taught in law school, you know, and so. <laughs> And, and when I started law school, it's taught as like the, one, the last thing you learn before you leave, not necessarily something that you're going to teach to fourth graders. It's a, a fairly complex framework uh, that, that uh, is not part of the, the elementary uh, social studies curriculum anywhere, even remotely, uh, at least not in the framework that the people who devise critical race theory understand it. So, okay, and, and, and I... Take your point. I mean, I, I, you know, it's been a long time since I went to uh, a state school in the United States, mm. but um, uh, you're, I, I think you're correct that <laughs> that um, you know, in fourth grade they're not teaching critical race theory when they teach history. No. Um, so what's all the fuss about that? Why? Why are you know, So we've got bills in numerous states yeah, trying yeah. to ban this in different forms. Uh, it's being particularly cited. I mean, why are that? Why are and I. I I, I, I hesitate to even say her name. Why are the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world so head up and worried at the moment, or are they actually about critical race? Oh, theory? I'm sure Marjorie Taylor Greene is reading Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell in her free time. <laughs> um, so I, I try to figure out sort of when this becomes a, a talking point for the right, and, and there are a few places uh, during the Obama administration where it comes up. Actually, uh, there was a case in 2012 where Sean Hannity showed a clip, actually, of Barack Obama, who went to Harvard Law School, hugging Derrick Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory. Now, they didn't explain what critical race theory or why you know, this particular hug was, was, was problematic, but you know, in Hannity's mind, Derrick Bell was a radical professor. And much of this, if you think about sort of the, the, who is Obama associating with, there's a whole, there was a whole dis- right-wing discourse that Obama was so, you know, uh, uh, friends with, with socialists and radicals right, of various right, kinds, yeah. right? Yeah, his uh, pastor. His, it's all, yeah, exactly. It, it's part and parcel of that. Um, and I think part of, of what Hannity jumped on was the name critical race theory. I think that sort of sounded really ominous on right-wing television. Uh, but I think the more recent uh, sort of fervor about it uh, can be traced to a guy named Christopher Rufo, uh, who is a right-wing documentary filmmaker associated with the Manhattan Institute and the Discovery Institute, who uh, went on Fox News on the Tucker Carlson show a bunch of times 
uh, and and talked about critical race theory uh, a bunch, um, and he claimed that critical race theory has uh, is 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 influencing every institution in the federal government, and his conception of critical race theory was everything that was a diversity training, all of that's critical race theory. Anything that is about sort of um, you know, bias training, um, privilege training, all these kinds of things that have become uh, somewhat ubiquitous, not only in the federal government, but in a variety of different institutions. All that is critical race theory. He says it's common in at the federal government. He says it's very common in schools. He says it's fundamentally Marxist in orientation uh, and is a fundamental threat to America. Now, who is the most important Tucker Carlson viewer a year ago? Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump, who, who, who responds to this and sort of echoes things that Rufo said. Uh, in September 2020, he issues an executive order banning diversity and race sensitivity training. And this is where he mentions critical race theory explicitly as saying that it was divisive, anti-American propaganda. I think let's unpack that for a second because I think this part I think this goes a long way to explaining the current uproar about mm. this um, divisive. So, so one of the things I, I think the use of that word divisive is interesting because one of the things that we've seen in the discourse around this. Mm. So if we try to take the people, the kind of GOP lawmakers across the United States who are upset about this, you're right. I don't think they're reading Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, but let's assume for the sake of argument that they're actually operating in good faith, that they think this is a danger. Why do they think it's a danger? Well, one of the discussions that became widespread in the United States, and actually quite sophisticated in the United States last summer after the murder of George Floyd, mm. was a, around the concept of white privilege. Now, th that obviously has roots that go beyond you know, the antecedent, the, the killing of George Floyd. But I think that entered the kind of discourse last summer, mainstream discourse, in ways that people like Donald Trump and his supporters found quite threatening. So when Donald Trump used that word divisive, I think for many of his supporters, and I think for the kind of legislators who are drawing up some of this uh, legislation across the country at the moment, the acknowledgement of white privilege and confusion about what pri white privilege actually is mm. um, kind of became all white people are racist and and there was a kind of backlash it fueled a backlash which I think has has very much is a, is a big part of critical is a big part of the criticism of critical race theory as these people think they no as they understand it not mm. necessarily as it is um, and, and so I think as in many ways Donald Trump articulated something there that he didn't necessarily intend to articulate yeah <laughs> as an expression of that and I think that that it, it's you know we talk we've talked about the 1619 project which I think is, is a big part mm. of the current discourse about this well the backlash against the 1619 project again from people who probably haven't even read the 1619 project is you know if you center slavery in the history of the of the United States, hmm. you must therefore be decentering other things, things to right? Sure. And 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 I think that's fueled this kind of near hysteria about this that you see in certain quarters in the United States. And when you combine that with demographic change, hmm. the fact that whites 
in coming decades will, will be the largest minority in the United States, not the majority. I think that for some people, this, this combination of things didn't only fuel Trumpism, but it helps explain this, this backlash. But I don't, I, I don't think it's as simple as, I, I think some of the people who are doing this are white supremacists. Mm. I think you know, there's no doubt about that, et cetera, and, and, and are pursuing a racist agenda, explicitly racist agenda. I think others, you know, Hillary Clinton, her basket of deplorables comment, I go back to that all mm. the time, it was a very interesting one. If you go back and unpack that during the 2016 campaign, she said, look, when you think about President Trump supporter or then candidate Trump supporters, uh, Mr. Trump supporters, uh, some of them are white supremacists, those are the deplorables, we can't have anything to do with them. Others are people that have been left behind by globalization, the changes in the economy, let down by the education system, etc., etc. And to some extent, she's describing, I think, the constituency that is attracted, or I should say repelled by critical race theory and thus supports restrictions on it. Hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things to note is that, that, that Trump's executive order banning critical race theory uh, came out at the same time as his executive order created in the 1776 right. commission. And those two things, I think, are part and parcel of one another. And the 1776 commission, of course, is a response We've talked about this before. Response to the 1619 project um, about creating the, the, the curriculum. Um, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about preparing for this, and I've looked at some of these laws that uh, state legislatures, some of them are considering, some of them have actually already passed and become law. Um, applying critical race theory, the framework to those laws, and it's very intriguing what, what happens if you do that. Because a number of the laws, if you read them at face value, they seem neutral. A lot of them say, for instance, uh, that schools cannot present any racist or sexist material to students, either in written or visual form. And you say, okay, well, on the face of it, they're saying they're trying to fight racism and sexism. In practice, what that means, what's going to happen, is that you know you cannot then assign... Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia to students, because that's pretty racist stuff in there. Nor can you assign... Huck Finn. Nor can you assign Huck Finn, nor can you assign Martin Luther King, potentially, because he sometimes quotes racist people, who are saying, you know, or Malcolm X, or actually anything that really addresses race in any way, because what's going to happen is some parent's going to call up the principal saying, hi, my student was exposed to racist or sexist material in the classroom, based on their definition of what's racist and sexist, which may or may not be your or my definition or anybody else's definition, they're going to call up the principal, the principal's going to call up the teacher, the teacher's going to say, fine, I won't teach that anymore. What you end up then with is a curriculum where they don't talk about race at all, including things like slavery or the civil rights movement or Jim Crow or any of it, because that's the safest move that teachers have and the same the kind of direction that principals are going to push teachers because they don't want to ruffle feathers, they don't want to make the you know, state legislature mad at them. Yeah, so the example that really came to the fore in the past week or so was in Texas, where they've, you know, there's discussions of a, a number of laws mm. to de-emphasize slavery in the history of Texas and the founding of the Republic of Texas, which, is a, as Annette Gordon-Reed demonstrated yes. in, in her new book on Juneteenth, you can't talk about Texas history without talking about this. The reason why Texas exists <laughs> yeah. is because of, yeah. Um, and, and you... And so to do this would, you know, would to 
be to make the history of Texas almost meaningless and incomprehensible. Oh, yeah. You know, to be sure, right? I mean, it's to create the kind of, you know, what you end up left with is a kind of the the denuded patriotic history that, that the people on the right are, are pushing for and things like the 1776 Commission, one that, that celebrates the American accomplishments while ignoring the, the very complicated history with race and class and gender and all these other kinds of things that... that, that um, potentially might make people uncomfortable with their history, right? Um, and I think so. It fits into part and parcel with that. The laws, on some of them on their face value, you know, aren't explicitly racist, but when you sort of say, okay, what's the, what's the effect this is going to have on what these classrooms look like? They are going to reinforce certain kinds of racial hierarchies uh, and practices. However, hmm. the demography of the nation is changing. It will continue to change and um, no laws will stop that. And so as classrooms become more diverse, and I realize even using the term diverse mm. is, is anathema to some people <laughs> um, when it comes to critical race theory um, or opponents of critical mm. race theory, um, and that change can't be stopped, won't be stopped, um, despite the best efforts of former President Trump and his acolytes. Mm. Will that mean that this is a moment that will pass, or will this stuff become enshrined and it'll be very difficult to, to uproot? Well, I mean, it strikes me that... The, Are we in a Mr. Potato Head moment, moment, or is it more profound than that? You know, that the, the, the classroom is an inherently sort of political space. Um, and that, you know, there have been a variety of movements. I think the thing that strikes me is there are a variety of, of moments in which you know, trying to shape the, what's going on in the classroom is, is done um, with a huge detriment. Um, you know, we can think about the ways in which, uh, you know, there were laws passed in the 1950s that prohibited um, teachers from discussing socialism, right, and making pledges that they, they you know, wouldn't share any socialist material with students. Well, what that means is that, you know, high school students, you know, never got to read segments of the Communist Manifesto, which means they're probably not going to understand much about what communism is, right? You know, which, which then has political consequences, um, both you know, at the moment, but also ones that last about what they think about how the world works. Um, you know, they're not, they're not going to be exposed to a diversity of viewpoints, you know, and the similar things happen with curriculum reform, whether that's the history standards that were introduced in the 90s that, that, that Congress trashed or the common core standards uh, that were put in place more recently. Um, that there, there's a lot of politics in the classroom, even if, even if people tend to think of the classroom as a apolitical space particularly. Well, particularly because it's always idealized as an apolitical space. space right. when even doing so, so even if, if that's your ideal, that's a political statement. But yeah, but but it's a it, it's contested ground and always has has been. And interestingly, we're mm. seeing parallels of that here because there's a debate. There are debates going on in the UK about what's appropriate for it to be taught in schools and at universities, uh, yeah, to and discussing sure. universities. So there are some echoes of this American debate happening here in the in the UK at the moment, which is. I mean, 
Interesting. And some, some of these laws do apply for higher education as well, you know, and, and how do you then go about sort of teaching things like the Holocaust, right? Well, without, you can't, you know, you end up with not being able to, you know, sort of ignoring these important historical developments, whether they're in the United States or outside the United States, because the, the sort of, uh, there, there's an inherent sort of conservatism within American public education, uh, because teachers don't want to step out over, uh, you know, out on a limb, and, and schools are very rarely going to encourage teachers to do that. Um, and, and I think these laws are, are definitely sort of pushing in that direction. Um, you know, and I think you see a, a movement against uh, uh, talking about race, whether it's, uh, you know, one, one of the more recent examples has been the news very recently, uh, speaking about the 1619 Project, is this whole controversy with, with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones at UNC. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, David, as, as an alum in this. Yeah. So, so briefly summarize the, the controversy, and then I, I want to hear your views on it. Uh, so Nicole Hannah-Jones just... To remind everyone is uh, was a uh, reporter at the New York Times. She was the sort of brain, uh, she, brain behind the sixteen nineteen project. The, the editor who organized it and put the whole thing together. She's won I think MacArthur Grant. She's won a Pulitzer. She's won all kinds of awards. A very distinguished journalistic career. She's a UNC alumna, so she did her undergraduate there in the School of Journalism. She got appointed to the night chair in the School of Journalism. There are these night chairs at a variety of different journalism schools around the United States. The very prestigious appointments designed towards getting, uh, you know, uh, important journalists in the classroom. That's sort of the purpose of, of the, the, these these chairs. Uh, and she got named to this chair, and she was very excited about it. the The journalism school was very excited about it, and. Um, the hiring process had gone smoothly until it got to the university's board of trustees, where they determined that they were going to hire her but not give her tenure, uh, which is in contrast with the practice with all the other night chairs the university has ever had. Um, all the other ones were white people, and, and obviously uh, this is the first would have been the first African American to, to hold that position, and the first African American woman to hold this position. Um, and this has caused a, a firestorm of controversy because, you know, the Board of Trustees, unusual circumstances, I think rubber stamps tenure decisions as a, as a matter of course, the tenure decisions are really made by uh, departments, and especially for a distinguished chair to be given a chair but not have tenure um, is extraordinarily unusual. Um, Tempted to make a, a, a Star Wars prequel reference, but don't. No, okay, that's all. <laughs> um, <laughs> Frank understands the reference I'm trying to make. But I'm not going to make it. <laughs> Listeners who are nerds will also understand the reference. Never mind. Um, and you know, to understand how this ended up, you know, the the board of trustees at the university is is uh, some of them are elected by the state legislature, and some of them are. Uh, Selected by the board of governors, which which is sort of the head of the university system, and those are selected by the state legislature. So they're all political appointees, basically. Uh, and the Republicans have been in charge of the North Carolina legislature for for more than a decade now, including some very conservative people. 
Um, and if you look at who's on the board of trustees at the university, they're the same people who authorized, uh, you know, giving more than a million dollars to uh, sons of Confederate veterans so they could take their Confederate statue off campus. Um, they've made all kinds of efforts to change the curriculum to favor certain kinds of political positions. Um, but this has caused, I think, a you know, huge amount of controversy on campus where, where, where the students and, and, and the faculty at, at UNC very much see this as, as a academic judgment that should be made by academics and not a political judgment, but uh, you know, the Board of Trustees has taken that. So, so how does this all relate to CRT then, David? Well, because she has been branded as the sort of godmother of CRT, even if, again, this is connect, you know, um, CRT, as we've discussed, is really about sort of legal training in law schools and the ways in which legal scholars embrace things. You know, the sort of broader framework of CRT, the broader sort of label of CRT that people like Chris Rufio uh, and others and, and President Trump, they see all of this as any kind of analysis that puts race at the center of anything uh, is, in their minds, CRT. Um, and so, you know, she has uh, become a sort of a pawn in this big political uh, fight over how essential we want race to be part of the discussion about, um, you know, what university life is like and what education is about and what students are going to learn, whether that's students who are in a journalism school or whether it's students who are in elementary school. And in some of these laws that either proposed or adopted, mm. they've explicitly mentioned the 1619 New project. Yeah. Prohibited teaching the 1619 project um, in, in, in schools. Yeah, uh, and the 1619 project is, is in part designed to be taught in schools. They well, actually that's right. have a curriculum uh, that they've attached to it, um, which I've looked at and, and is, 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 is interesting and thoughtful and, and well put together. Um, you know, and, and historians have. You know, there have been historians who have quibbled with, with the, sort of the margins of the 1619 Project, but it's, I think most historians look at it and say this is a, a fruitful contribution to the discussion, even if they don't necessarily agree with all the you know, footnotes. Um, at least that's my reading of, of, of the field. You may yeah, that would be mine too. I mean, uh, one of the real controversies ar arising from the 1619 Project among historians I'm not talking about the 1619 project mm. as a caricature uh, as portrayed on Fox News, um, re relates to the American Revolution and mm. the importance of concern to preserve slavery as a, as a cause of the revolution. And I think, as originally presented, the 1619 project probably went too far there, but it was a relatively minor quibble, and this is the kind of thing historians debate about. It's certainly debatable, mm. and it wasn't a sort of... And so some historians, again, in my own subfield, made that point, and I'm not unsympathetic to it to a certain extent, um, but that doesn't in any way invalidate the project, or the... Or, you know, the first of all, anything that seeks to explain the entire history of the United States in... A relatively brief document. Yeah, New York Times insert. Right, <laughs> is you know is going to generalize and then, you know and is going to be you know leave itself subject to open to again criticism might be an overstatement but you know revision well, and, and they did revise that aspect of it in the, for the forthcoming yeah. book and, and so it, it's yeah I agree with you so so yeah. uh, one could. 
quibble with the 1619 project, mm. but not that doesn't invalidate the 1619 project. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Well, and there's, uh, you know, the, the intention, I think, was to be provocative and thought-provoking, you know, right. and, um, you know, I think many of the criticisms that have come of the 1619 project have been like, well, actually, I haven't read the New York Times insert. Right. Um, just like the criticizing critical race theory without actually having, uh, you know, read the scholars in question. And, you know, I don't pretend to have, have read exhaustively on critical race theory, but I'm pretty sure I've read more of these guys than most of the lawmakers who are voting on it. Um, so where's, uh, wrapping up, David, where does all this go? Well, you know, I, I think... Um, One of the things about, about about this that sort of echoes to me is that you know that, that they're controlling how history is taught and how social studies is taught. It is a really powerful tool, and it's a, it's it's a, a platform. I think that, that that conservatives actually have done a much better job of of gaining control of the levers of power than um, can, than than liberals have. You know, if you look at Who's in charge of state boards of education? Uh, you know, they're, they're especially in places like Texas. They're not only sort of Republicans; they're 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 ideologues oftentimes. Um, oftentimes, ideologues that don't necessarily have any particular training in the the kinds of curriculum they're making, but they have ideas about what they want. They think America is about, and and are trying to impose those on a curriculum. Um, you know that they demonstrate, you know, an effort in some ways to, to silence certain perspectives in the classroom. Um, you know, and we can think back about sort of other parallel examples to this. Thinking about sort of the UNC example uh, with, with uh, the the Hannah Jones hiring. Uh, you know, that's a state that for many years had a ban on uh, radical speakers. They had a speaker ban law that said like nobody who is seen as being they originally were targeting communists, but it sort of became much bigger than that. Um, was allowed to speak on campus, and and that was because the the uh, the state legislature determined that those were um, you know a threat to safety or something. Um, you know, and, and it took a long time to to undermine and fight against those kinds of prohibitions. Um, what do you think, in terms of what the next step is, though, I think, you know, liberals need to t take a much more active role in, in empowering teachers and, and um, placing more value on history education broadly. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. I suspect if we mapped the states where these restrictions mm. are being adopted onto these states that have... Um, that are also adopting restrictions on the right to vote, hmm. um, that the Venn diagram yeah. would be a circle. <laughs> uh, and, and so I think this is yet another case where the United States is very much at least two countries, hmm. because I think in other states they will not adopt these laws, and, and, and the, the, the discourse uh, or the teaching of history will, will, will continue uh, as, it, as it has. But, hmm. um, so I think we'll, increasingly what we're seeing is you know, red America and blue America, and it's, it doesn't necessarily 
conveniently map uh, yeah. red and blue will, will continue to diverge, and that's not a good thing. Yeah. I don't know what the solution is. Though. One thing that has been very concerning to me about history education in the United States over the past 20 years, and I say this having previously been a high school teacher and having trained people to be high school teachers uh, for a while, is the amount of time that students get with history and social studies education has declined significantly over the past 20 or 30 years. That the, especially with things like the Common Core, that, that, that privilege uh, English, math, and, and, and STEM subjects, um, social studies education has become, and it was already kind of marginalized, has become increasingly marginalized now. Instructional time they get, especially uh, at the elementary school level, has, has gone down dramatically. Um, and, and, and that has consequences. Um, you know, and I think we're, we're starting to see that the fruits of that in some ways, that, that people are, are, are uh, you know, who have gone through that 20-year period of education, who didn't take history at, at the university level, if they went to university at all, um, you know, have a, a, a very different kind of understanding of, of the structure of, of politics, civics, history than, than a generation previously. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound old here, but when I was a kid, you took social studies and history. They were separate mm. subjects. Um, and social studies was essentially civics. Yeah, the uh, dramatic uh, civics education yeah. has declined um, significantly. Um, and, and that, you know, thinking about what, what effect it has on, on the voting populace, that, that, you know, many students got very little history or civics in school, um, helps to explain why certain political ideas um, are able to gain traction, I think. Well, not just voters, but the legislators or... Uh, oh, yes, no, I, was, I was thinking that as well. I was, I was trying not to uh, denigrate too many elected officials, but you and I are probably thinking of the same people. Yeah. Um, right, okay. Well, <laughs> that's that's your, I was so happy to see you, David. Yeah, I was I, happy to you're see. bringing the bummer again. That's your yeah. move. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I I think we need to fight the good fight. I think you know that 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 you know, we've seen these kinds of restrictions on teachers before, um, but it does take a while to sort of work these things out. I had great history teachers in high school. I don't know about uh, you. I had very good history you know, teachers and, in high school, uh, uh, and I, you know, and, and I still have my high school history textbook. Yeah. Uh, we need a spot. Mr. Mott, Mr. Farrow, if you're out there, thanks very much. Well, you know, we ran into one of my high school history teachers a couple of years ago. So, yeah, because he came here to do your little program. Right. So, uh, last drops, what you got? Yeah, I want to give a shout out to uh, Robert Allison, Bob Allison at Suffolk University in Boston, who is the host for the Revolution 250 podcast, which I can recommend to you. Okay. And I did an interview. Uh, this is going to be a little bit self aggrandizing because I did an interview yesterday with Bob. If you want more Frank, yes, if you, want, if you don't have enough Frank in your life. Um, then, then uh, listen to the Revolution Two Fifty podcast because I didn't. I had a chat yesterday with Bob, really about all things Jefferson. So we ranged all over the place and touched a little bit on these issues in terms of, you know, what use is Jefferson as we think about twenty twenty six and the twenty first century, and it's something that's kind of preoccupied me. So I had a really nice chat with Bob, and he was a very gracious host, and so I recommend the Revolution Two Fifty podcast. What about you, David? Uh, well, I've got two things. One of which is kind of related in a weird way, and one of them is a follow-up on a last drop I had a few weeks ago. 
uh, longtime listeners or people who've been listening for the past couple months will remember I had a last drop about um, the donation of some artifacts connected to the Alamo uh, from the singer Phil Collins, uh, previously of, of Genesis and other things. Uh, there was a story in Texas Monthly that argued that basically most, if not all, of those artifacts are probably fake. Wow. Fake or or not what he thinks they in other words, are they well are they contemporaneous? You know, is it a musket from the eighteen thirties? Some of them they think are sort of like time period appropriate artifacts, but not necessarily things that have any connection with the Alamo, and some of them they think are actually replicas that are fakes. You know, because because if you look at, at Collins's collection, he's like, look, this you know, the, the, this sword belonged to this guy and you know and and it's uh, the Texas Monthly article argues that that in fact many of the people that Phil Collins bought this stuff were from may be uh, slightly shady dealers. I have a, if I can follow on to that recently, uh, right before the lockdown or back in the autumn of two thousand nineteen, I attended a conference um, and we visited a country house in England as part of this thing, and and the owners of this this home were descendants of Cornwallis. Oh, and I have a picture of I should share it with uh, of me holding the Cornwallis, what they call the Cornwallis sword. And the story is that it's the sword that Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. Okay. So if you've seen the John Trump sure, painting, sure. Um, uh, I I spoke to the the archivist there, who was a very nice man. In fact, I sat next to him at dinner, and uh, he said, "Well, it is." A Cornwallis sword. sword yeah, so Cornwallis a... owned this sword. Um, whether it was the Cornwallis sword, we can't really know. I will say it was a cavalry saber. It was very light and very sharp. Uh, it was actually very interesting to hold this thing. But um, yeah, anyway. a sword. Okay. Uh, well, so so it's similar. So, yeah. so so I think that poor Phil Collins might have been taken in by. Yeah, yeah, and, and was as as we mentioned, you know, he had this sort of childhood fascination with the Alamo after watching a Disney movie and. Has been collecting all this stuff because he, you know, um, which I, it seems like he was keeping in his house in Italy or something, and then they donated it to the album. But it's an interesting story about sort of the history you want and the mythology you want to buy into. Yeah. So what's your Se- second, second one? story? Um, is about flaming hot, and you know, the connection here is tangential, but you'll you'll see what I'm saying in a second. Is about flaming hot Cheetos and the origin story about flaming hot Cheetos. I don't know whether you're a flaming hot Cheetos consumer, Frank. I'm personally not. It's not really my kind of thing. Uh, I have but had flaming, flaming hot, hot Cheetos. Cheetos right? I'm not really a Cheetos guy. Yeah, I'm not really a Cheetos guy. Anyway. So um, there were have been a number of stories about who created flaming hot Cheetos, including a very long story on NPR uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and they talk about this guy who was uh, named Richard uh, Montanez, who was a janitor at the, at the Frito-Lay factory, who claims to be the inventor of Flaming Hot Cheetos, where he sort of took some Cheetos that hadn't had the, the powder put on them, and his wife had developed this uh, spicy stuff to put on the, the Cheetos, and that he called up the CEO, and he had this sort of origin story about the guy at the bottom of the ladder who was the immigrant who devised the Flaming Hot Cheetos, Huge story on NPR. They're going to be making a movie about this guy's life. All these other kinds of things. Story in the LA Times. Turns out he may not have invented Flaming Hot Cheetos at all. That And the records for the company from that period are, are, not, are not great, but there appears to be some other people who are in the Midwest who may have actually invented Flaming Hot Cheetos a couple years before. Uh, this guy who was in California claimed to have invented 
Flaming Hot Cheetos. And so there's a debate about the actual point of origin of Flaming Hot Cheetos. And I think both of these stories have this sort of, you know, the, myth, the, the mythology is so enticing about this sort of factory worker who was sweeping up, you know, and was able to sort of work his way up the corporate ladder because of his invention, um, which may or may not actually be true. So, if I can tie a bow on all of this, <laughs> okay, from CRT through to um, the Alam, Phil Collins and the Alamo and, and Flaming Hot Cheetos, it's, there's an inherent tension, and this is a tension that's uh, at the heart of history, between the stories we tell ourselves mm. and we tell others about ourselves as we want to re be remembered, and the, the stories that are actually, actually true. true. I'm right. using inverted commas to talk about truth because um, you know, truth is contested. Yeah, I mean, yes. we, we, we've learned this, and, and, and these stories sometimes conflict. So there's a, there's, a, there's a tension between the stories we want to tell ourselves. You know, the, the, again, I don't want to, we don't have to revisit the conversation we just had. I think some of these legislators, there, there will be a legislator in Idaho, say, which is one of the states mm. that's adopted one of these laws, who genuinely wants to believe the United States is not a racist country and we're getting it wrong in saying so. Yeah. And that person is not dissimilar from the person who wants to believe that the gentleman invented Flaming Hot Cheetos, Cheetos yes. or Phil Collins and saying, you know, this pistol came this from the Alamo. It's a kind of human tendency that we ought to be... We shouldn't necessarily always see this as a zero-sum game where we want to fight with people over this. We need to genuinely understand where people are coming from, from as well. Yes. You know, so, so, so that impulse in part... Uh, is, is something we need to understand because it, 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 it's... Teach, you know, you talk history about history mythology. Yeah, is you, very talk, you teach the history of the Civil War, I teach the American Revolution. These are both heavily mythologized yes. topics and we find ourselves frustrated and coming up against those mythologies all the time. But we also need to take them seriously. Oh, to be sure. Yeah. So that's the moral of the story. Moral of the story, whether or we should eat, you know, celebrate over Flaming Hot Cheetos. The moral of the story is when we're in the same room together, we talk too long. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> Cheers, Frank. <laughs> Till next Cheers, time. David. <laughs> The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 